Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. It is Friday, April 24th. We've got a very special episode of today's show lined up as we bring on our friend and former colleague from Rotowire, Jeff Erickson. Jeff, thanks for joining us. How's it going for you today? Going well. Uh, you know, been a busy week. Had two fantasy baseball drafts and the NFL draft last night. Uh, hey, something to do almost every night. It's good. Yeah, it almost feels normal, uh, even though you know, drafting in mid-April is not uh, normal. But uh, glad you're a part of our Triple Crown League that I put together, where we're doing a mixed league auction, an AL-only auction. That was this week's auction, and then NL-only comes up uh, next week. So we're going to focus a lot on the AL-only auction uh, on this particular episode. And you know, the first thing we wanted to bring up is everyone knows that an auction is always unique. It has its own ecosystem, but... What were your general impressions of this particular room, uh, which was a 15-team AL-only format with slightly smaller rosters to uh, avoid making the player pool go too deep? It was similar in depth, at least, to a 12-teamer with larger rosters. Yeah, and early on, I thought, oh, there's, you know, I I, I thought prices might have been low. It was really interesting. Uh, But I was like, I don't know. Maybe my numbers are wrong. I've never played with this sort of roster construction. Uh, but I kept on seeing guys go four, five bucks, sometimes nine bucks lower than my auction price, and I didn't get them. I don't know what I was doing, guys. I, I really, you know, you, you run numbers, you should trust them a little bit. But I was like, wait, maybe I'm wrong, you know. And then Justin Verlander went for thirty dollars, and I knew that everybody else was wrong, and that, and, and I was wrong not to be buying. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've made a huge mistake. So uh, is that is that what you came away from the auction feeling that you w- should have been more aggressive earlier when the big names were coming on the board? Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially, and we all saw it in the end game uh, that we all had money left. And you know, normally you have. I, I got to a point where I think I had uh, twenty two dollars left for five spots. Normally, in the end game of an only auction, yeah, that's pretty sweet. I'm going to control the end game, uh, guys. I couldn't get a player for an hour. It was crazy. Uh, and that's when I knew I kind of made a mistake. Now, I, I did adjust midway through, and I got a lot of guys in the teens. If you look at my pitching staff, for instance, I only have one one pitcher that wasn't at least $13. And it turns out that was okay. You know, I, I got I got guys I liked. And it was, it was kind of a weird draft because I had a list of guys was, that I wanted to get that either I hadn't had before or guys I knew that were, that were kind of targets. But the cost of that mean was that I don't have one single thirty dollar player on my roster. Uh, the most expensive player I have is Giancarlo Stanton, who wasn't even a target. It was kind of like, oh, I like the price. Okay, I'll buy it. Uh, but I noticed, like, you know, it, it, I noticed during this draft, like for instance, the first player off the board was Mike Trout, and he went for a fair price. He went for fifty five bucks, I think, uh, and that was or fifty four bucks, and oh, it was fifty five, and that was you, Beller. Yeah, fifty five. Uh, it was, and that was right at my values. I was like, okay, great. Then DBR got uh, Garrett Cole for forty four, and frankly, that was a couple dollars too cheap. Uh, I think I had him valued at like fifty one, and I kept on seeing guys, and it was. I think we're all adjust, like a lot of us, at least in my case, I was adjusting to a new auction room. I've never done an auction in RT Sports, and getting used to the quirks of that. I was setting up the Zoom call at the same time, like, oh, that just sold. What have we done? How could we let Pat Fitzmaurice get Justin Verlander for thirty dollars? That was ridiculous. Uh, and there was a couple others like that in there too. Uh, I thought JD Martinez it was a nice price for you DVR. I was like, I probably should go the extra dollar, but this is maybe my dollar values are wrong. And so I, I backed off a little bit. Now I, I wish I hadn't. 
I had a similar feeling. I was using the RotoWire draft software. I've used that for years, of course, you know, working with you for more than a decade. And just, I think it's really well designed software. And because I hadn't ever even run the values for a league like this before, I did have that shred of doubt as I was watching some of the early values. But it was the Verlander buy in particular that kind of just raised my eyebrows like, wait a minute, something's not right with how the room is handling this. And I still, I got caught in, in stars and scrubs mode where I was afraid of buying one too many expensive players. Because if you do that, I feel like you end up with a roster that's just too top-heavy. And for an only league especially, that doesn't really work. And right. I still, in the end game, ended up overspent. I had eight extra dollars at the end, basically, that I threw at Chad Pinder. So, fab redemption or whatever if he gets hurt. But I just, I was, I was amazed that this room was letting so many values go by with so many people here. Now, the other thing that I, I wanted to bring up is that you, the shape of your roster is a lot different than the shape of my roster, which ended up being more top-heavy. Was that by design, or is that just kind of the way things fell early on? I mean, Stanton at 26, you mentioned before, was your most expensive player. He probably could have been a $35 player in this format. Um, your pitching staff is you know balanced really well. Taylor Rogers was your most expensive pitcher at 19, but you got three above uh, 15 with Urquidy at 16, Miner at 16, Montes at 17, Yarbrough at 18. You actually got four above that price. Is that part of the plan, or is that just the way things played out? Kind of the way things played out. I typically go out and get a, a, a more impactful ace. And when I didn't get Verlander, uh, then I kind of scrambled in. I, I thought there were others there that I could have bought, but in a way... I, I didn't want to go after the $40 plus players. And I, so, yeah, and that probably couched my thinking a little bit and letting some of these go, but it feels like I wasn't the only one doing that. Uh, and that could be a mistake. I, I mean, I got a number of guys where I thought, I, Oh yeah, I like that price. And then one player where I overpaid for sure in Cavon Biggio and cause I just wanted to get them. Uh, and so I got a little bit of a bidding war on that one. Uh, but for the most part, it was, uh, I think it was, uh, you know, a case there where, I, I wanted the certain guys to, uh, and got them and just avoided some of the you know the the other prices, even though they were good deals. Yeah, I was uh, I, I was I, we're all in the same boat here in uh, DVR. What you described, uh, I, I was in that uh, avoiding the top heavy roster or trying to avoid a super top heavy roster. Trout fifty five right off the bat, the first player. I think that led to me missing out on some of these values. It was almost like these guys would get nominated, Justin Verlander being the key one, and me just sort of checking out for you know a minute and a half, being like, all right, well, he's going to get bid way up, and I can't possibly afford him next to Trout if I want to uh, build out this team the way I want to build it out. And you know, falling asleep in an auction like that can can certainly cost you, and it it definitely did to me here. Uh, DVR, you bring up you bring up Taylor Rogers as uh, part of uh, Jeff's team and as the most expensive pitcher. On your team, Jeff, uh, in a mono league, do you look at closers any differently than you would in a mixed league? Because there are just not only fewer of them in total, but fewer reliable ones. Not just a mono league, but a mono league with fifteen teams. You know, there by definition, you know, there's at you know, there's really there's fifteen closers, right? Uh, at, at, at if you know, you know that you kind of think that at some point, all right, there, there's not going to be someone's going. There's at least two or three people in this room that are going to be punting closers. So the question is, do I pay for the closers that I like or do I just try to scrounge later and, and not go at all? You know, do, you be one, do you become one of the punters? So I, Rogers was a bit of a test case. I think if he goes one more dollar, I don't get him. 
Uh, but I might get someone else. There, there's like three guys like in that range. I wanted either Rogers or Hendricks. Uh, th- these were, you know, a couple of the guys or, or Nick Anderson. Those were the three that I was kind of targeting. And I want to see, okay, where are they coming in price-wise? And they all kind of came in at the same price. Uh, so that was fine. Uh, that that was that was an area there that you know you could in a in a this unique format fifteen teams plus only seven pitching spots you could decide at the, at the table okay I'm not I'm not going to go ahead and pay for closers I'll try to you know punish wins and K's instead but I got Rogers and I got him early and I was like okay well that set my path and it looked like a lot of teams went six starters and a closer or five starters a closer and a reliever to pad ratios. Uh, because, as you mentioned, there just aren't that many saves to go around. So I'm curious to see as it plays out if anybody who ends up with two closers, if they do exceptionally well, because maybe they win that category and they do well in ratios. We're looking at a shortened season as well. So things are just different about this league. And I guess if, if you're looking at the results, one thing I would just tell people is expect to see high-end players about plus 10, plus 12 over what they would have gone for ordinarily mid-tier players anywhere from probably plus 7 to plus 10, and then bottom third players even 3 to $5 above expected cost for the most part. And even through that lens, there's still some really unusual things that happen because of the way this specific one played out. Um, thinking about the NL auction we have coming up, I mean, do you, do you think there's anything useful having gone through a similar process this week? Is there anything you can take away? Would, would it make you more aggressive spending early in the NL, seeing how this one played out where people were generally reserved, or is it a case where you have to just read the room and see if everybody else goes overboard and, and maybe gives you the room that you thought you were going to get the first time around? I will say one thing. Trust trust your values. Trust your work that you've done. If you see a bargain, take it. You know, Don't let a bargain go by. You got Anthony Rendon for 33, and that was Grand Theft DVR. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I really... I was, it was another, that was in the midst of me questioning, you know, okay, maybe I've got this wrong, you know, and as it turns out, no, I didn't have it wrong. It's just that I, I had it wrong by not bidding instead. And meanwhile, third base gets to be a wasteland really quick in the AL. That was another thing that I just could not roster a third baseman. I think that I had a chance at one point late in the draft to buy a, a, a third baseman for around 11 or 12 bucks. Although who knows? It might've kept going. But I was like, no, there's this other guy I like a little bit better. I'll take him. No, take, yeah, don't be picky at that stage, lest you get stuck with Isaiah Kiner Falefa as your starting third baseman. <laughs> That's a problem I have all the time where I, I too often lean on the rosiest projection in my head. Like I'm the only person who knows this guy yeah. exists or I'm the only person who, who's going to want him. So like for sure I'm going to get player X at $10. Who else is going to bid me? I, like I'm already penciling him onto my roster uh, before it actually happens. And that's, uh, that's been a hard learned lesson uh, for me when it comes to the auction format. I do want to circle back uh, to closers for just a second here. I, in my home league a few years ago, we adopted saves plus holds instead of just saves. I was sort of against it at first, and I've really come to like it, not only because of the uh, additional options it gives you and doesn't make you feel like you have to go crazy for closers, but because I also think it reflects the way bullpens are used in Major League Baseball. I think it does a good job of putting value on guys like Ryan Presley, who maybe isn't going to save a game all season for the Astros, but is going to be a really important pitcher for that team in real life. Uh, Jeff, any opinion on saves plus holds? I think I, I would actually like to see it adopted more. See, I applaud the idea of improving the value of guys like Presley because they really are super important. 
I just hate the stat. I hate holds. Mm-hmm. I, I think that as bad as saves are, holds are even worse. You can be entirely ineffective and still get a hold. Uh, you can come in, you know, retire one batter, allow three runs, and as long as your team didn't lose the lead, oh, hold. You know, it's and you can also get multiple holds in, uh, for one team in a game, which is kind of a little bit different too. Maybe that's that that speaks more in favor of it. But I I, I guess I could power past that though, uh, especially in today's era where you know where you talk about the usage. You know, ten different Rays had saves last year. Uh, it's really frustrating to try to target the guy that's getting saves. But if you get saves plus holds, chances are they're going to get one of the two, and they're going to be productive. So that 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 would improve a Nick Anderson. You know, where, okay, I don't really have to sweat the role he has. Uh, I know I got uh, some exposure to Anderson this year just because I think he's just that good. But, you know, his role is super volatile. That is going to be a problem. But if you add saves plus holds, well, that, that, that takes away a lot of the edge. I think one of the challenges of drafting right now is it's really choose your own adventure as far as what the season's going to look like in terms of duration where it's going to be played, and then within that, you know, what are the rosters going to look like for major league teams? Are there going to be occasional double headers to boost up the game count? You know, there's a lot of things we just don't know at this point. Uh, how did you kind of set up the league in your head going into this auction? What sorts of modifications were you accounting for or kind of projecting into your values? So because we don't know, and I, I think we need to emphasize how much we really don't know how this is going to play out. I try not to get too clever. You know, I understand that some of the guys that have innings caps, maybe that's less of an issue. Maybe in the injured guys, like, you know, a Verlander should be priced back up, although he never seem, seemingly is. Scott Genstad got him for us in our mixed league team at a, at a price below a lot of Verlander's peers. Uh, so it seems like people are still, avoid. you know, we all say, Put him back up, but he's not really going back up. So it makes me wonder. Uh, but th- those would be two obvious areas. Uh, next next week for when we do the NL, it's going to be interesting because some of the talk has been, oh, there might be universal DH this year. Well, maybe that helps a guy like Jesse Winker or some of the other teams that have like extra outfielders. All of a sudden, now there is a, there's that extra spot for them, and you know you you don't have to lament the lack of DH. But we'll see. But the fact is, we don't know. And anybody who tells you otherwise is kind of lying. You know, they're they're guessing, and they feel, they may have, feel like they have an informed guess, but there's nothing locked in place right now because we really don't know how this thing's going to progress. I mean, Jeff, thank you for coming on and say I'm really happy we invited you. I was already happy we were having you on, but come on, say something like that. I feel like I've been taking crazy pills because I've been saying the exact same thing. We had a whole roundtable that had a lot of questions about what if this happens, what if that happens, what if this happens, if there's a 2020 season. And my answer, I even had to address how similar my answers were to all these different questions because I feel like we know so little that it's a fool's errand to try to adjust to what we might think ends up being the 2020 season. So I've been trying to stick to what I thought about players and teams you know, two months ago when we still thought the season was going to start on time. So first of all, you are a very smart guy, and I am happy that <laughs> I've got someone, uh, someone to agree with me there. <laughs> Secondly, in looking at this format as a whole, we've got the mixed auction, which we did you know, nine days ago. We had the AL only, which we did last week, and then the NL only, uh, which we have coming up next week. Now, we did the mixed first. So we already had these mixed league teams, and 
I thought that coming into the AL and then going into the NL that there could be almost a uh, like a, a duplicative effect of if you have a player already in the mixed, be more aggressive on him in his mono league because you're sort of getting double points from both of these guys. It's part of the reason why I was almost not going to let Mike Trout go to anyone else uh, <laughs> other than me because I already had him in the mixed league. Uh, did you think about that at all? Will you think about that at all for the NL only? Yeah, although, honestly, I didn't commit what Scott did for us to memory. I knew about Verlander and a couple other players, but, you know, I think that makes sense. But then again, yeah, so, yeah, if if you're right about a player, it does double the effect. I suppose that's true. Uh, But we are operating under, you know, yes, we're adding the results from our AL to our mixed totals, but we're not... We're not adding the individual tolls. We're mis- get, we're adding our fantasy points, our rotisserie points. So, you know, they are separate universes. So it had to make sense. And everything has to happen in a in a uh, in a kind of a, a vacuum, anyhow. Uh, but I, I see the logic in that. I really didn't think that went through too much. I, I probably could have targeted more of Scott's guys. Yeah, it's something I had thought about, but I also didn't consciously seek out. I wondered if there was something to doubling down on the players that I already had from the mixed league. So something I'll probably chew on a bit more over the weekend before we get to the NL auction uh, next week. Um, one of the buys I really liked on your team from the pitching staff, by the way, is Frankie Montes at yes. 17. Yeah. I mean, he was tearing up the league last year. He had added that third pitch. The splitter was huge for him. Obviously, the PED suspension basically cut his season in half, and it wouldn't have surprised me, especially given the dynamics of this auction, if he'd gone for 24 or $25. Uh, is he somebody you've been targeting a lot this draft season? I mean, what's your overall view of him? Absolutely, I've been targeting him a lot. Uh, I got him way back in January in the FSGA draft. Uh, I got him a couple other places. I've missed on him barely in others, uh, but I did a little fist pump after that one. I, I was happy, uh, especially because I missed out on the top-tier starters. I was like, okay, I don't have an ace. This is, maybe I got to find someone who could have the upside of being an ace. Well, okay, let's go for it. With Frankie Montas here, and yeah, I, I probably would have gone two, maybe four dollars more. Uh, you know, depending on you know, I, yeah, I, I think I probably would have because that was like my first starting pitcher at the time too. So yeah, I think I probably would have gone a little bit more. Uh, it sounds like that's the guy that maybe you were most excited about after winning, and I, I'm with you guys completely. I thought Montes is, uh, it was excellent at 17 and would be great at, you said, two to four more. So 19 to 21, great at that price as well, especially compared against the rest of the room. Uh, is there anyone else on your team uh, when you look up and down, uh, not only just the player but the price you got him at, uh, anyone else that you uh, had a little fist pump after landing? I think retroactive fist pump on Luke Voigt at 17 because I was looking at Voigt versus uh, CJ Crone, and I really kind of wanted Crone because he, but he as a later guy that you can usually get at a reasonable price, and then Crone went for twenty three dollars, and as that was that was a part of that was like the very beginning of the insane phase of the draft where you know everyone realized oh crap I have too, way too much money left I better start buying guys. Uh, and I was like, okay, I got in just in time on that one. Didn't do it at third base, but at least I got one corner out of it. I was happy with Carlos Correa at 21. I'm not even a huge Carlos Correa stand, but I, it was, it was, the price was right. And I, again, it was where if, I think if he goes later in the auction, when everybody still has realizes that they had money, he probably goes for $8 more, at least compared to some of the other guys that were going, uh, in that price range later on. I, I was pretty, pretty pleased with that one too. Yeah. Um, uh, my, $24 Miguel and Duhar uh, checks in to say hello. I mean, like, yeah, there's there, there is a point in an auction 
if you have too much money left and it's probably the last hour, beginning of the last hour, you are better off spending the extra five, or in this case, maybe 12 on a player you actually like as opposed to trying to ride it out, trying to get players closer to your value and ending up just holding the money at the end. And I still had that money left over, as I mentioned before, with $8 Chad Pinder. Still kicking myself for that. Um, the other pitcher that kind of stands out to me from your staff, though, is Jose Urquidy. And you know the Astros, of course, have a nice track record of, of developing some pitchers and uh, obviously have made some trades and brought in some aces that way as well. But Urquidy, to me, is really intriguing. There hasn't been a lot of hype on him coming through their system, really a kind of a breakthrough player last year especially. Uh, what is it about him that, that stands out to you, and what kind of ceiling do you think he brings? So, yeah, he was a target, uh, and I, I probably overpaid for him because all it takes is one other person. I really like him, but I love how he finished. I, I think that uh, given the way the Astros are constructed, the gloves are off this year. Uh, they're going to use him pretty extensively, and I, I like his strikeout upside. Uh, I think you know another year removed from the Tommy John, I think it should be – all systems go for him. Uh, James Anderson, another guy in our league, was the guy that kind of pointed me out uh, to him last year. And I, I, I guess I just, I've always, I, I just like the way usually what he costs. And I just like uh, the, you know, the organization. And I like his stuff. You know, we'll see about ballpark. That might be something that changes as we were talking about, you know, what, what we know and what we don't know. He might be pitching in Houston, might be pitching on the surface of the moon. I don't know. Uh, I'd prefer Houston. But, uh, you know, we'll see uh, about that one, too. <laughs> uh, another pitcher who, who jumped out to me here is Ryan Yarbrough at $18. Um, what, were you, what made you willing to go to 18 on Yarbrough? It's the same price uh, that Scott Pianowski from Yahoo got Matthew Boyd, a couple bucks more than uh, some of the guys who we at least think are going to be relatively safe closers, a dollar less than Liam Hendricks. So uh, what about Yarbrough made you willing to go up to the 18 on him, making him your second most expensive pitcher? the time when he came up and you know, if he goes an hour earlier, I probably get him for 11. I mean, I'm, I'm, he's a target of mine, but it just happened to be when everyone saw the inventory, you know, fading or like, Oh crap, I better get some guys. And you know, I, I think it was him or Yanni Chernos and he came out first. Chernos maybe I think went for one more buck to Jason Collette. Uh, I actually, I like all raise pitchers, uh, except for at least for the price, except for Blake Snell. Uh, but I, I was definitely uh, one of those guys I wanted, and I think it was DVR that I was going up against you on him. Yeah, that was definitely a phase where if I didn't have the most money, I was near the top. I think James probably had more money than me for, for most of the end game. But uh, Yarbrough, to me, he's one of those guys that on most other teams, I don't think I would like him because I don't think the stuff is overwhelming at all. I mean, he's a lower velocity guy, but I think the, the Rays just use him to perfection, and I, I trust their process enough where I think they can continue to get good mileage out of him. And I think just considering the different ways and the unknowns about this season, they're an organization with pitching in particular that I would be generally optimistic about. I continue to invest in Brendan McKay, even though he's probably not in the rotation to begin the season. Mm -hmm. Yarbrough is on my list. Yanni Chirinos is on my list. Uh, Trevor Richards was a reserve pick for me in this particular draft, and I just think he's another one of those guys where if you think back to how the Marlins used them, it was pretty much starter or short reliever. They didn't try to do the multi-inning reliever or the follower thing with Trevor Richards, whereas I think the Rays will. So part of this unknown for me is wanting to go after organizations and players in the organizations 
who I trust to be flexible and very forward thinking about how they deploy their talent in what could be a very unusual season. Right. And I know earlier they were saying that Yarbrough will be a starter and not a primary reliever. I wonder, if, you know, does this long layoff and perhaps truncated uh, ramp up period when we do get started again, does that change their plan a little bit? Do they go back to using an opener? If so, give, yeah, I'm even more on Yarbrough. One of the things I like about Yarbrough is his extreme control 20 walks and 141 innings last year, basically 5.7 Ks to, for every walk. Uh, you, you love seeing ratios like that. Uh, and he, I, I believe he's top 10 last year and K, K to walk ratio K minus walks. Uh, either way you look at it there, he's not a massive strikeout guy, but when you're throwing all those strikes, it, it's a good thing. I, I hate watching the nibblers out there, the guys that walk the ballpark. And I think Yarbrough kind of turned that corner last year and I'm kind of counting on a repeat of that. Yeah, I think smart organizations and deep organizations are going to be ones that you that you want to target with this uh, truncated season that we are going to have. Uh, I, I think that, like, I trust you know these are these are NL teams, obviously, so not players that we were thinking about this week. But uh, I really trust the Braves and the Dodgers to to make the most of their pitching staff. So I, I think that they're they're going to be able to go into it smartly and savvily and really know how to get the most out of every single guy up and down those rosters. And it might make someone uh, like Ross Stripling or like Sean Newcomb a little bit more interesting when we get to our NL only auction next week. Uh, we had we had a five-round reserve uh, to wrap this up. You ended up taking Travis Demerit, Tommy Canley, Dowell Lugo, who was someone who was actually on my list, who I almost ended up buying in the auction, uh, Clark Schmidt and Jacob Wagesbeck in those five rounds. Any of those guys you're particularly excited about in this format? Kind of like Clark Schmidt. We'll see what happens with the Yankees' rotation uh, injuries. Remember, Domingo Herman still has to serve that suspension. Even with the the long you know layoff, he still gets the same length of suspension. So someone's got to jump in. Of course, Paxton being healthy again kind of changes things a little bit. They might use Lil Isaac out of the rotation, or they may put him in the bullpen. We'll see. But I, I think Schmidt's got a chance to come quickly. I think he'll get a look still this year. Uh, I think he'll be one of those guys, again, we don't know if there's going to be minor leagues, if there's going to be a big taxi squad for each team, if they play in the Biodome. I don't know what, what they're going to do, but uh, I, he's a guy that I was kind of been tar- I, I, I've been targeting a lot of uh, reserve drafts. And then Lugo, I mean, that's a reflection of, like, I took the best available third baseman, uh, third base eligible guy, mm-hmm. so I could at least have a couple of them there in case uh, Kiner Falefa doesn't work out. You know, you keep talking about, you know, it's funny. Kiner Falefa is like, oh, yeah, you get this catcher eligible guy that you can play, that he plays elsewhere. Unfortunately, I'm using him elsewhere, but uh, that that's not how you're supposed to do it, but so it goes. I think there were some underlying signs of growth with Kiner Falefa. I, I'd kind of written him off and stumbled yeah. onto his baseball savant page this winter, and I felt a little better after looking at it than I did prior to looking at it. In a league this size, anyone who plays is absolutely worth uh, considering, especially when you can move him around a little bit. Even in a one-catcher league, a one-catcher 15-team AL-only league, um, yeah, having a little depth that you could move behind the plate, definitely nice there as well. Uh, let's let's go through some toss-ups. We, we do this from time to time, just throwing a few options at you and getting your feel on what you would choose in various scenarios. Uh, the first is a beverage toss-up. Thai iced right. tea versus iced coffee. And you can you can make the iced coffee however you want. If you want to make it a frap or you want to add syrup to it or whatever, you can modify it to your liking. Which one do you go with? I go Thai iced tea, but in moderation. You can have There is such a thing as having too much Thai iced tea. 
it's super rich and all that. But, and, you know, you, I know you're a fellow uh, Lotus of Siam uh, fan as well. And when you go there, when, when in, when in Bangkok, you know, go, go ahead with uh Thai iced tea for sure. Um, but I kind of alternate back and forth on that question. <laughs> iced tea generally over coffee though, is, is something is a thing for me. Iced tea. Okay. You'll take an iced tea over uh, just coffee period. Yeah, I, I go to a tea place all the time uh, locally here, California, Southern California. There's a lot of good ones, and I happen to live in an area which is uh, heavily, uh, heavily Chinese actually, and so there's a lot of good tea places, and I, I've become a good, good convert in that. Man, I'm not. I'm just not much. Of, I'm a tea guy when I'm sick, but other than that, I am uh, straight coffee and a very seasonal coffee drinker. Uh, so I'm in Chicago, so about. Mid-May rolls around, and that's uh, when I start drinking iced coffee, and I'll be on that till about the middle of September, and then hot coffee uh, the rest of the year. I, uh, I like to uh, to match the coffee uh, to the weather for me. Um, how about this next one? Uh, we're going to throw uh, throw the old Red Stadium and the new Red Stadium, or newish, newer, current Red Stadium at you, Riverfront versus Great American Ballpark. So, guys, this is, uh, this is where I admit a great failing of mine. I've never been a Great American. So... Uh, Wow. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> no, I, incomplete would be my answer there. I know Riverfront was there, – there's fond memories of me going to Riverfront, but I knew it was a dump. Uh, so I'll, I'll say Great American by default, but I haven't been. There's nothing wrong with that, though. I feel like I answer so many questions based on the nostalgia and like the memories that I have personally when I was at – x place or listening to x song and it doesn't really matter how they are received critically i think that's a perfectly valid way to answer a question yeah and the thing is i yeah so i'm a reds fan but i've never lived in ohio that's right i i, I do forget that there wasn't a, a stop on the the jeff erickson life tour that brought you there yeah i grew up in indianapolis indy was the reds farm club that's why I ended up, and my dad was a big Reds fan. That's why I ended up a Reds fan, and he stuck me with it, and I stayed with it for some reason. <laughs> well, Great American, I went to the first, my first time two summers ago, and I thought it was a uh, better-than-average park. I've been to, I don't know, like 15 or 16 of the current parks, and uh, I think I would rank Great American probably right around the, the middle of that. Nice. How about you, DVR? Yeah, yeah I've been... I've been there once. I saw a no-hitter. <laughs> it was Homer oh. Bailey's more recent no-hitter, so <laughs> I think that probably bumped it up in my rankings a little higher. Um, it it was the same trip that I went to PNC Park for the first time uh, in Pittsburgh, and it's not quite on the same level as PNC, but it's a nice park. It's worth the trip. Had a great time there. Uh, the thing that I didn't quite figure out in the brief time I was in Cincinnati, Jeff, uh, was Skyline Chili. I didn't stop there. It just it didn't seem appealing enough. Did I make a mistake? Is there something about Skyline that that I'm I'm missing? I mean, you didn't live there, but I'm wondering if you ever had a chance to to eat the Skyline and if I if I missed out on a great opportunity. This is also a null set for me. Never tried it. <laughs> but I am told and thing is, I mean, I know the reputation of it. Uh, so that's I you know, there there, there's strong opinions on the internet on this one, apparently. So, uh, but no, I don't. I, I not qualified to answer on this one. Uh, the other good thing about uh, Great American is they also have the Reds Hall of Fame there. They really, you know, Cincinnati is really big on its own history, and that's one thing that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I, I like it there. My uh, I've been there a few times in recent years because my uh, my wife's sister and her husband live in Cincinnati, and. Uh, it's, uh, it's a town that gets ripped on, but uh, which I guess is true of, of Cleveland, too. Ohio has this bad reputation, except for Columbus. But uh, I like both those places, and Cincinnati definitely a fun place to, to check out. Uh, you have 
not only had been a, a lifelong Reds fan, but a lifelong Bengals fan. You mentioned off the top, the NFL draft, the first round was uh, last night. Uh, your Bengals made a very big pick getting Joe Burrow. So uh, the last 20 years or so of quarterbacking in Cincinnati, you've had Carson Palmer, Andy Dalton, and now Joe Burrow. Uh, even without Burrow playing a game yet for the Bengals, we have to throw this one at you. Between those three guys, who are you taking? Uh, pre-injury Palmer. He was still the best. I mean, the, him getting his knee wrecked in that playoff game against the Steelers still, to this day, hurts me. Hurts me thinking about that one there. But uh, it was his first you know, playoff game in a long, long time for the Bengals then. And to have it happen against a division rival. When we were the home team, I think we were the two seed in the playoffs. You know, we, uh, you know, it was it was one of those where it, it's going to stick for a while there because that could have been great. Uh, I'm I'm psyched for Burrow though. It was the right decision, even and even though Andy Dalton had a really good Bengals career, he he's still Hall of Very Good, and you know, not winning a playoff game is kind of you know that that's going to unfortunately sting with his legacy. But he was good, and keep in mind he was a second round pick that made well pretty quickly, got him to the playoffs in his rookie year. So I appreciate his career, and you know, off the field he does all sorts of amazing things. That said, it was time for Burrow. Yeah, I think I think he's got a win on his playoff resume if he didn't suffer that thumb injury at the end of what was that the twenty fourteen season fifteen right one of those years when he got that thumb injury and McCarron had to start their first playoff game and they lost. I mean, I, I thought the Bengals were a really dangerous team at the end of that season. Yeah, and that was also to the Steelers, by the way. And uh, yeah, no no bitterness whatsoever in that game either because there's nothing nothing happened in that game that would make nothing at all. So, nothing, no no sort yeah. of head hunting or anything in that one, right? Nothing. No no uh, assistant coach right in the middle of the field not getting flagged himself. Oh no, nothing nothing like that at all. Nope, no drama in that game whatsoever. Uh, how about an old-school Reds pitching toss-up uh, to close us out? Mario Soto versus Jose Rio. Mario Soto. I mean, I love Jose Rio. Love the 1990 World Series. Our next retroactive draft is going to be 1990. But Mario Soto is one of my three all-time favorite Reds. Uh, it's, it's Soto, George Foster, and current Joey Votto. Those are my three favorite Reds of all time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a nice group to have as favorite players and, and touched on it before the, the history in that organization is strong. So it is really cool that it's a, a big part of the ballpark experience in Cincinnati. Jeff, thanks for making the time for us today. This was a blast to catch up with you. And uh, again, looking forward to competing with you in the final leg of the triple crown league. Yeah. Can't wait guys. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And thanks for putting this together, doing some good at the same time and having a lot of fun. All right, that's Jeff Erickson from Rotowire. Follow him on Twitter, at Jeff underscore Erickson. You probably follow him already if you're listening to this particular show. Be sure to check out Rotowire as well. Pick up a subscription if you don't have one already. That'll do it for today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get a 90-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free 90 days. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you.